This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Oh! 
Good evening. Welcome to Radio Orbit on your imagination station. Mike Hagan with you every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. And tonight we're doing it up just the same on a Halloween night in 2005. Sort of a spooky, misty, rainy, cloudy night. No moon really to uh, uh, be concerned with either way. Uh, Sort of a new moon right now. And even if it were clear, you wouldn't have... A good view of the moon tonight. But at any rate, uh, it is Halloween, so happy Halloween to all of you out there reveling and uh, uh, trick-or-treating and out and about. Columbia's interesting on uh, a night like tonight. Some great music actually going on in town. I just uh, was down at the Blue Fugue uh, before I came down here to the show, and uh, great stuff happening down there. Witch's Hat playing probably starting right about now. As a matter of fact, I've got a couple of passes to see Witch's Hat uh, at the Blue Fugue, if anybody, you'll have to come down to the station and get them, though. So if you're downtown and you're listening to this right now, just come on down to 915 East Broadway and come in the back alley and uh, say the secret password when you tap on the door, and I'll give you a couple of passes to see the show down at the Blue Fugue right now. Great music uh, tonight on Halloween night. So that's going on, and of course, good stuff going on all over town uh, tonight. And uh hope you're out enjoying yourselves, okay? Okay, so it's Halloween, and uh, in the honor of our tradition, we will have Kent Stedman on the air with us tonight from cyberspaceorbit.com. We'll be talking about Halloween, uh, uh, the traditional versions of Halloween, and maybe a little bit about the history. I think we're actually going to talk about some creation mythology and some other things tonight. But anyway, Kent will be on the air, and it's always interesting with him. Never know quite what we're going to get with the Bard. But... Uh, Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com will be with us in just about an hour or so. And uh, we'll be talking about Halloween and all kinds of interesting things with Kent. All right. Uh, Mars, uh, although there's no moon, it's too bad that we didn't have clear skies tonight because both Mars and Venus uh, both striking right now. Mars as close as it's going to be for many years. And uh, Venus always bright this time of year. But anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about that during, sp- uh, during space weather. But uh, just wanted to mention a couple things up front. Now, there's one other thing that I want to mention, and Kent and I will be talking a little bit more about it. But I'm all excited, and you've heard me sort of uh, uh, hint at it over the last few weeks. But the, uh, the new website is actually done. And, uh, I mean, it's going to have to be tweaked a little bit, and it will evolve, and uh, your comments are welcome with regard to that. Uh, but at any rate, it's up and running, and uh, a big thank you and heartfelt appreciation to my friend and brother, Larry Norager, out in California, who's uh, doing all this tremendous work uh, on the website, and uh, for anybody who's interested and wants to check it out, go down to MikeHagan.com, www.MikeHagan.com, and you can see what Larry has done, and it is astonishing, and I've been blown away, and I get blown away the more I get to know uh, this guy, and I'm, he's like my angel or something, uh, some sort of a, uh, I call him my techno-angelic guru, because uh, he's all of those things. He's a total techno whiz. He's an angel, and he's a, a guru when it comes to all of it. So anyway, thanks to Larry and uh, uh, everybody else who's made this whole thing possible and would have never imagined uh, a year and a half ago that we'd be doing the stuff that we're doing now. And 
there are interesting things coming up um, in the future. I've been I'm in discussion with uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith. Of course, you guys who who listen to the program are familiar with Joanna, and her and I have become you've sort of gone right along with the ride as her and I have become friends. I've been telling you about it as it's sort of evolved because it's been such an f- amazing story in my own life, uh, especially with regard to you know her f- former husband was Timothy Leary, and uh, I would never have given Timothy Leary a second look were it not for my uh, one of my most loved uh, teachers, Terence McKenna, and so anyway, there's a there's a real interesting thread that runs through this whole thing, and Joanna is just a uh, a wonderful person. I'm so glad to have met her and to be able to collaborate with her on some of this stuff. But anyway, we did this Pioneers thing a couple weeks ago, and it went really well. And the people that uh, uh, that sponsor that event. Uh, are an organization called the Marion Institute, and we're 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 uh, we're talking. And, you know, we're trying to come up with a way um, to help everybody. And I think there's lots of potential and lots of good ideas and imagination. So we'll see. But anyway, there's um, there's lots of interesting stuff happening, and I love doing the show uh, for everybody who listens to it, uh, whether you're a few or many. And I just want you to know that I appreciate everybody out there that listens to the show, regardless of where you are or who you are. And uh, it's um, a great thing that that uh, that you're out there listening and that you appreciate the program. And I'm really really going to try to continue to do uh, more fun and interesting stuff uh, uh, to keep uh, keep people listening and try to get some more uh, some more people. Uh, listen to the show as well. So, all right. So all that's coming up uh, tonight. Ken Stedman. Next week, Walter Cruttenden. Walter has written an amazing book called The Lost Star of Myth and Time. And the headline, nutshell version of what he is writing about, is uh, the idea that the sun in our solar system is part of a binary star system. In other words, it's not the only sun in our system. There's another star involved. And uh, we just don't know about it because it's uh, uh, the periodicity of its orbit uh, is a long, long time, and uh, history is not quite uh, as long as we all like to think it is. But anyway, he brings all kinds of interesting uh, folklore, mythology, and science into this particular uh, discussion. And the idea of binary star systems is actually a really interesting one that has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of discussion actually in the main uh, in the mainstream. Uh, astrophysics community. In fact, one of the interesting things about this book is that it sort of came out simultaneously with a statement from the straight astrophysicist that says that binary and multiple star systems are the rule and not the exception, and that most stars are part of a system, a pair, or a, or a multiple star system, and that w- and, th- and that you rarely find. Uh, stars that are sing- singular. So it's a really interesting concept, and it may be something that's relevant uh, to us uh, now and to uh, uh, the way we look at the past and certainly the way we look at the future. One of the main parts of this book, or one of the main emphasis of this book, is the idea of cyclical time as opposed to linear time. Uh, and uh, that's a that's a concept that really... Um, requires some conversation and so we're going to do that uh, next next week with Walter Cruttenden the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time uh, 
and uh, amazing stuff. Uh, I, as I've been reading this book, it's been really, really uh, sort of uh, another one of those take the blinders off sort of situations. So, okay, after that, uh, let's see, that's the 7th, and the 14th is Lucy Pringle, live from London, or thereabouts, somewhere in the United Kingdom. I think she's actually in Devonshire. But at any rate, uh, Lucy Pringle, uh, private pilot and uh, photographer and a 30-year researcher of crop circles and crop formations. And Lucy was on the program last September, and it was a great uh, show. And I really look forward to talking with her uh, in depth again in a couple of weeks. So if you're interested in these amazing formations that show up on the countrysides in England and, and elsewhere around the planet, and um, and you're not sure if there are every single one of them uh, done in the middle of the night uh, by people with ropes and sticks, uh, well, you may be interested in listening to that show because uh, Lucy has a lot of really, really fascinating and interesting information with regard uh, to the crop formation phenomena. All right, so that's coming up. Um, in a couple weeks, and what else? Doro Meinke. Doro Meinke is a, a initiated Peruvian shaman, and she is going to be talking with us about male initiatory rites and male initiation, something that, uh, as I've mentioned before, doesn't get quite the uh, the discussion that it that it needs and deserves in this country and in the West in general and in the world in general. Actually, it's something that's really been lost. Uh, this idea of the transition from uh, from manhood, uh, or from uh, from boyhood to manhood, I guess I should say, and uh, it's no small thing. And in many cases in our country and in the West and the world in general, it never really happens. And one of the results of that is that you get a bunch of adult males who aren't men. Unfortunately, it creates big, big trouble. So, anyway, I better lock the doors now because I'm sure some of them will be running down here now to beat me up or something. Anyway, so uh, Doro Meinke talking about uh, male initiation in a couple, three weeks. Joseph Chilton Pierce is going to be back on the show very soon. Paradise Newland, Dr. Michael Heisen, uh, and more and more interesting stuff to come as we get in with it, okay? All right, so... Contact information, the email address uh, has not changed, orbitradio at aol.com. That's orbitradio at aol.com. And the website now, I'd like everyone to go to mikehagan.com, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com. You can always go to Radio Orbit. Uh, that website is still up and running. Eventually, they will go to the same place. Uh, and for now, I'll just leave it up as it is. I'm working on solving some of the problems for 56K and uh, dial-up users on the website, so bear with me. We've gotten the MP3 streaming uh, slash download issue straightened out, uh, and I know there were some people that were concerned about that. And uh, just the general uh, download times of flash animations and this sort of thing that's on the site, uh, it's just something that... Uh, this is the nature of the beast right now, and and I'll, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about my mindset behind this actually. Um, and uh, we're going to be building another site that will basically be a, a simplified version of the main site with all the same links, etc. Um, but it'll just be uh, much less image intense, 
and much less uh, uh, take much less time for downloads and stuff uh, if if you have a uh, a slower connection, a dial-up connection, or something like that. But the the, the long-term strategy is that bandwidth is only going to be uh, a problem for uh, for X amount of time. I'm not sure exactly. People debate how much time that's going to be. My my I, my personal opinion is that it's not going to be long uh, before uh, we have very good pipelines that are available to most most people, and I think it's going to become free. Uh, very soon, actually, too. And I think it's going to happen here in Colombia. And if I were a politician, uh, that would be one of my uh, one of my primary uh, positions that I would take and one of my platforms that I would use. Uh, we have a community here that is supposed to be forward-thinking, that's supposed to be on the cutting edge of science and technology, medicine, uh, etc. We have one of the largest universities in the country here. And we have a diverse uh, faculty and all kinds of uh, very interesting and intelligent uh, people that run around this town. And the fact that we're not on the cutting edge of, uh, of Internet technology and, uh, and, and broadband uh, participatory um, uh, Internet access to everybody uh, is something that needs to be rectified. And if you want to get elected... Uh, I'd say put that on your platform, and I'll bet you get elected uh, pretty quickly. Just follow through with it. Just call Google, all right? Make a phone call to Google and tell them that you tell them that you heard what they're doing in San Francisco, and uh, in other parts of the country, and that you'd like Columbia to be the flagship for the Midwest uh, for free, unlimited, wireless bandwidth for the masses to share the technology and to share the information and to share the magnificent tool that the Internet is and, uh, and can be uh, for everyone uh, if, we, uh, if we get access to it. And, and, and as bandwidth becomes less and less of a problem, the potential uh, utilization of the web becomes more and more amazing. And one of the things that Kent and I talk about all the time is the imagination. Well... That's exactly what's happening here. Uh, use your imagination. Very soon, the web and the technologies that are associated with it, including these amazing software technologies that are now allowing anybody, you, me, or uh, whoever, to create art and to publish art in ways that we could never have even imagined doing it as little as five, ten years ago. And by art, I mean all forms of it. I mean music. I mean poetry. I mean visual art. I mean dance. Multimedia. Uh, performance art. This is all stuff that the web is now uh, bringing forth. And it's just a matter of time before the bandwidth issues, uh, issues go away. And the web is going to be used for immediate interactive uh, communication of all of these art forms. And, and this is what... Uh, uh, this is one of the one of the things that I'm very excited about and striving for, and I'd like to see Colombia uh, on the front edge of that wave as far as what we bring to our citizens in this community, and uh, and the way that we consider uh, this tool that has been placed in our lap and how we use it. 
So anyway, uh, cool stuff coming, and uh, the technology is uh, is something that is knocking at the door. It's already in the house, as a matter of fact. It's been with us uh, since the chipping of the first stone, since the creation of the spoked wheel, and on through history. The difference is now we're, be- we're, we're becoming closer and closer to the technology. It's becoming more and more enmeshed with humanness and yeah there are problems associated with it certainly and uh, and things that need to be talked about but but the the forward momentum of this thing is something that is not going to be stopped because it is the story of human history the story of uh, the development of the machine and the man machine symbiote so we'll talk more about this stuff as we move along. And in the meantime, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And we'll be back in about 40 minutes with Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com. We've got sort of a Halloween theme going tonight, obviously, because it is Halloween night. And we'll start it appropriately with Smashing Pumpkins. This is Hummer from Siamese Dream. Mike Hagan, you're listening to Radio Orbit.
All right, there you have it. Smashing Pumpkins from Siamese Dream. That's Hummer. And this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Okay, space weather. Sun rather quiet. And it's weird. October has been a time over the last few years that I've really had my ears uh, perked up for the for the sun. But uh, after that giant outburst that it had uh, a month or so ago, it's been very, very quiet. So anyway, not much happening on the sun right now. The uh, sunspot count is low. Solar wind is just uh, typical and uh, not a whole lot to talk about as far as solar activity. Now, uh, Halloween. Uh, a couple things going on. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the astronomical uh, significance of Halloween. It's interesting. There are people that wear costumes for all kinds of different things, uh, but they uh, you don't typically see them dressed up as astronomers. But it's really an astronomical uh, holiday. It's what's called a cross-quarter date, and what that means is it's midway between uh, an equinox and a solstice. There are four of these days uh, throughout the year. Each one is a, uh, considered a minor holiday in many different traditions. Uh, one is Groundhog Day, another is May Day, uh, Lamas Day uh, is August 1st. And the fourth one is Halloween, August 31st, or October 31st, of course. So, anyway, um, uh, says John Mosley of the Griffith Observatory, the Celts of the British Isles use the cross-quarter days to mark the beginnings of the seasons. And uh, winter began with Halloween. Halloween marked the transition between summer and winter, light and dark, life and death. And on that one transitional night... Those that had died during the previous year returned for a final visit to their former homes. People set out food for them and lit fires to aid them on their journeys, uh, but remained on guard for mischief uh, from the spirits uh, that might uh, come in one night when the dead would return uh, to the land of the living. So Halloween uh, has a long tradition in many different traditions. Uh, it has uh, been referred to as the Night of Mars, and uh, this Halloween, actually, in particular, a wonderful uh, uh, Halloween to call the Night of Mars, uh, when the sun went down tonight, uh, back in the east, Mars was rising. And actually, today, Mars was the closest that it will be uh, for the next 13 years. And it was big and eerie and bright red in the eastern sky. You could just catch a little faint uh, hint of it uh, tonight. Uh, when the clouds broke, it wasn't that cloud-covered uh, early on. It sort of is now, I think. But at any rate, Mars, uh, for those who had the view, was stunning, coming up in the east. And uh, it, uh, as I said, it's the closest approach that the red planet will have with Earth uh, for the next 13 years. Okay. So let's see. Um, what else should we talk about real fast? Uh well, Venus uh, is another planet that's really bright in the sky right now. And since we're talking about uh, Halloween, Venus is sort of a competitor for the uh, for a Halloween planet. It's sort of a hell-like place. <laughs> um, talk about global warming. It's 750 degrees Kelvin or something like that on the surface of the planet, the average, I think it's n nearly a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, uh, super heavy atmosphere, and uh, 
the pressure at what we would call sea level is about 90 times greater than the air pressure here on Earth. So uh, if you were on Venus, you would be breathing sulfuric acid and you'd be crushed and melted and dissolved in many different ways. So uh, uh, be thankful that you're on planet Earth right now. All right, and uh, we're going to take another quick break here. And we'll get Kent Stedman on the phone from cyberspaceorbit.com. And uh, I've got a couple things that I want to read to you. In fact, I think I'll read one. Uh, I, I got some great emails today, actually, and this was one of them. And I'll, I'll read this to you before, before we go to this break. Uh, um, but it is from a guy or a girl. I'm not even sure, actually. It goes only by the name of Space. That's how I know this person. And uh, thanks... Uh, to space over there at Big Medicine. And this is what he or she wrote. Halloween. It's like being a pumpkin. God picks you from the patch, brings you in, washes the dirt off of you, scoops out all the yucky stuff, removes the seeds of doubt, hate, greed, then carves a new smiling face, puts a soul, a light, inside of you to shine for all the world to see. All right. Happy Halloween. All right, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. And this is Toad the Wet Sprocket from Fear. Is it for me?
And this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's see. Okay, a couple new things. I always have a lot of news stories that I want to read, and I never have enough time to read them all. So one of the things that we've done at the new website is uh, I've added a news page there, and lots of the stories that I'd like to read on the air I have posted there, and you can go read them yourselves and link to the original articles, uh, the source articles, etc. And uh, I'm just going to read a few clips from these things uh, to give you a, a taste of what's over there. And then I have another piece that I'm going to read uh, that's sort of uh, special for tonight. And then we'll come back with Kent Stedman uh, right around the top of the hour. Okay? At any rate, uh, MikeHagan.com, and that's H-A-G-A-N.com. And if you go to the main uh, page, you can click on the link that says News. And if you click on News, it'll take you to the, the uh, Radio Orbit News page there. And here are some of the stories uh, that you will find there. And I'll read a few things uh, just that I'm looking at right now on the web. Ah, here's one that jumps out at me. Cops call for end of drug war. One of the most influential groups calling for the government to end the war on drugs is an organization of law officers... Uh, that have first-hand experience of its failures, according to the Albuquerque Tribune. The law enforcement uh, against prohibition, this is a, a lobby group, the law enforcement against prohibition lobby group against the war on drugs is gaining attention. You can read the whole story uh, at radio or at uh, MikeHagan.com on the news page. And that this organization is called LEAP, L-E-A-P is their uh, sort of monogram, but anyway, the law enforcement against prohibition. They're a, they're a lobby group of a bunch of cops that have decided that the war on drugs is ridiculous, and uh, hats off to them. All right, what else do we have here? A team of American and Bosnian archaeologists claim to have found two new periods buried under hills in Central Europe. They believe the ruins indicate the hills were once human settlements, probably built by a Stone Age super civilization tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, amazing, actually. Two pyramids have been unearthed in the uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, area, back where the war uh, was happening in Yugoslavia uh, in the 90s, and is still pretty much ongoing there. It's just a disastrous situation in, in so many parts of the world right now. But at any rate, uh, uh, an archaeological find of tremendous significance right in Central Europe. And uh, again, we'll have to watch this one and report on it more as... Uh, as we go along uh, and as the show moves forward. So, okay, what else? Uh, elephants may pay homage to dead relatives. Here's a good one. Elephants may pay homage to the bones of dead relatives in their home range as a study of the creature's responses to skulls and ivory suggests. Now, that's a fascinating story. It's in New Scientist, uh, New Scientist magazine. Again, a very reputable source and an amazing story. It basically proves to anybody who has a... Uh, all but the dullest among us will realize that these are uh, intelligent, sentient creatures that have uh, thoughts about the past and uh, uh, and family and friends and this sort of thing. And the total anthropocentric uh, paradigm that has infected the last 400 years of, of, of science uh, is something that is really falling away, and I love seeing stories like this. So, anyway... Uh, you know last week also that I talked about silver and what an amazing, uh, if unrecognized, uh, article 
that came out uh, in Fizzorg last week. And I'm just going to read the first sentence of that story. And, uh, and there's another follow-up story that I posted today or yesterday. But uh, anyway, this is from Free Market News. was the original source, but it comes from uh, University of Texas and Mexico University. And it was uh, pr- uh, published by Fizzorg, another very uh, uh, credible source. And this is one that I have experience in, in my own life, so I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for this. But anyway, in a groundbreaking study, the Journal of Nanotechnology has published a study that found silver nanoparticles kill HIV-1 and is likely to kill any other virus. Yeah, a dramatic pause. Silver kills HIV and probably any other virus. You know, everybody flipping out about the flu virus, the bird flu virus, or SARS, or this or that. Uh, Probably just another virus. No big deal. Uh, Anyway, uh, there's much, much more to this. Um, From Nano and Quantum Physics, October 14th, in the first ever study of uh, uh, metal nanoparticles interaction with HIV-1, silver nanoparticles the size of 1 to 10 nanometers, attached to HIV-1, and prevented the virus from bonding to host cells. The study published in the Journal of Nanotechnology was a joint project between the University of Texas, Austin, and Mexico University at Nuevo Leon. And there's, that is, a, again, at, at the website at MikeHagan.com, uh, in the news section, you can read the in-depth uh, article that, that uh, came from uh, Nano and Quantum Physics just, a, just about a week and a half ago. I mean, this is cutting-edge stuff and really important uh, for anybody that's interested in uh, their own personal health and uh, uh, medicine in general. Uh, because silver is one of these things, and I was ranting and raving about it last week, but it really is uh, something that uh, it's only been lost in the last 100, 150 years. Uh, again, this masculine paternal solar myth that has just taken over and dominated so deeply and, and, and destroyed a great deal of our past. So we have these huge, giant propagandized populations with very little knowledge about their true history. Uh, and we're now rediscovering a lot of that. And it's really important, but... Uh, uh, even in the old uh, cowboy films, you know, when they had a when they had a um, their canteen and they'd shake the shake and rattle their canteen to see if there was any water left in it. Well, you'd hear something rattling inside that. Well, that was a silver coin, typically. That's where that came from, because uh, uh, people routinely uh, put pieces of silver in things like milk, for example, to keep it from spoiling. It kills bacteria. Uh, in in the same thing for the water canteen, and it was good for health because you, by osmosis, got a little bit of silver in your system from drinking water that was uh, bathing a silver particle uh, or a nugget or a coin or whatever. So anyway, uh, legend mythology talks about the silver bullet. We have the legend of the silver spoon. Of course, the reason that is is because people uh, that had money used to use silver utensils and... Uh, they were more healthy than those who used tin. And I'm sure there were other reasons uh, uh, that attributed uh, to their, their, their better health. But uh, certainly silver uh, is one of those. And uh, that's, where we, that's why we talk about the silver spoon. So anyway, uh, now science uh, bearing out uh, folklore 
and ancient tradition, uh, talking about the benefits of silver uh, against bacteria uh, and viral infection. Okay. All right, lots of other stuff at the we- at the website uh, on the news page. I just read a few there, but there's already 15 or 20 stories up there, and we're going to add uh, to that daily. And it's a great place to go look for sort of cutting-edge, uh, interesting news. And I'll always have the source there, and we'll always put uh, uh, the original publication that uh, that we found the story. So um, we'll do our best to uh, to put stuff that's only um, you know as credible as we can as we can as we can make it. All right. Okay, uh, so this is Mike, and uh, it is Halloween, and my good friend Kent Stedman is going to be on the air with us in just a few minutes, and uh, off the air, Kent and I were sort of talking about what we were going to talk about tonight, and we never really know when the two of us get going, but uh, certainly we're going to talk a little bit about Celtic mythology, and even a little bit about creation uh, mythology uh, in those traditions. And there's a piece that I've read a couple times on the air over the last year and a half or so, and I'm going to read it again. It's one of my favorite pieces of literature that I've ever come across, and it was written by a guy whose name is Matt Jacobson, although he sort of goes by the pseudonym Buck Young. Um, and it is an historical overview of the whereabouts of gnomes and elves, fauns and fairies, goblins, ogres, trolls, bogies, nymphs, sprites, dryads, past and present. And uh, so I'll um, I'll read this to you here, and then we'll come back with Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com, and we will continue our fun. Halloween show on Radio Orbit. A long, long time ago, the earth belonged to the creatures of the wood. By creatures of the wood, I mean gnomes and elves, fairies and fawns, goblins, ogres, trolls and bogies, nymphs, sprites and dryads. They tended it and took care of it, played in it, danced in it, sang in it, cared for the wounded animals, worked out disputes between species, sat on mushrooms discussing matters of import, and drinking Labrador tea, rode down streams on leaves and bark and parachuted from trees with dandelion seeds. This was the world into which mankind was born. These early days, when man was but a newly arrived dinner guest who hadn't yet taken over the entire house, are fairly well documented in the, liter- in the literature and folklore of the world. So there's no need to go into that here. What I'm interested in, what I'm asking you to be interested in is the question, where did all the gnomes and elves, fairies, fawns, goblins, ogres, trolls, bogies, nymphs, sprites, and dryads go? The friction between man and the wood creatures began with the discovery of agriculture. With the discovery of agriculture, civilization arose and spread. The forests were cleared to provide wood for shelter and fields for, for pasture and crops. Mankind had set up camp, no longer just a visitor, Uh, In someone else's world, he pushed the wild back from his newly built doorstep. At first, this wasn't a problem. There weren't many people, and everyone else felt that it was only fair to allot them their little little half-acre to do with as they wished. Some of them even decided to help. Gnomes moved into the barn houses and helped out with gardening chores. The devic spirits of the vegetables helped the humans better organize their crops and plan rotation, taught them the correlation between planetary and lunar cycles and the agricultural year. 
Plant radishes when the moon is in Cancer. Harvest when it's in Taurus. Many trolls felt that the heaping piles of manure were actually a change for the better and decided to stick around too. The rest of the wood creatures just backed off into the wood, occasionally playing mischievous tricks on the new settlers, like turning milk sour or rearranging furniture or tipping cows. But man's dominion spread, and the forest got smaller and smaller. Things got real crowded in the woods, and things were getting worse in civilization. Most farmers weren't listening to the spirits anymore. People found they could increase their output by disregarding the needs of the earth. They were raising productivity but killing the soil. Chemicals were just a step away. Most of the Devic spirits and the gnomes fled. Some of the trolls stayed. Now there is little wild land left at all, and even that is shrinking at an unprecedented rate. There is simply not enough space for all the gnomes, the elms, the fawns, and the fairies. So where are they? Are they dead? No. So where did they go? The answer is a bit surprising. They didn't go anywhere. We did. Early humans had an intuitive knowledge of their role in nature, just as bears and raccoons and mice and every other critter does. They understood from the ways of the wild around them that nothing ever comes from nowhere, and nothing ever just disappears. Things change form. Death is necessary for life to continue. They offered up their kills as sacrifices to the gods of nature. They offered praise, prayer, sacrifice, and song to the spirits of the wild. Now we know that everything that has ever existed continues to exist in one form or another, and as far as we can tell, they were more aware of that back then than we are now. So the sacrifice, songs, praise, prayer, did not ensure the immortality of the slaughtered, either in body or in spirit. That was already taken care of. What it did ensure was the continuance of the connection between the spirit of the slaughterer and the spirit of the slaughtered. Killing is risky business. The membrane separating the internal from the external is not necessarily as thick or as clearly defined as we have come to believe. Every time we kill, we risk killing the reality of the thing inside ourselves as well as outside. We risk breaking the connections that lead in and out of the membrane. Taking life to the field to feed life requires a keen understanding of natural law, the law of give and take. When we lost that understanding, gave up the songs, the sacrifice, the prayers, we lost the connection. Saying grace is not enough. When we lose these connections, everything becomes dead. Fish, rivers, frog, mice, even each other. There is no way they can reach inside us anymore. The lines have been severed. And we are all under the impression that it is forests, the creatures, the spirits, the wildlands that are disappearing from the universe, and not us. This is not so. Thinking that is like thinking that if you stand on the edge of a limb and saw that limb off from the tree, the tree will fall and you will remain standing. Bugs Bunny might be able to get away with this, but we can't. When a marionette cuts its strings, the puppeteer does not collapse to the ground. When a spider severs the lines that connect its web to the trees, the forest does not fall away. It is we who have fallen away from the real world, into a world where we may carry out twisted sterile dreams without threatening the earth and its inhabitants. Ever wonder why the trees and stones and rivers and streams, the birds, the snakes, the bears, the frogs no longer talk to us as they did in the early tales of the Native Americans, the Hindus, the Africans, the Bible? It's because we're not around to talk to them anymore. Somewhere not so far from here in the real world, ancient forests are still standing. The buffalo roam, the prairies, the sky is full of condors, the deer and the antelope still play. Dodo birds wander in sandy beaches and they bump into things. 
Where there are still wetlands in our dream world, strong connections still exist. Bridges, tunnels, and portals. Occasionally a traveler will get lost in the wilderness and find himself in the real world, returning the next day to find that a hundred years have passed or never returning at all. There are more ephemeral connections as well, brooks and waterfalls where you can almost hear the voices from the other side, or when we eat psilocybin. And there is another connection. Sometimes agents from the other side infiltrate our world in an attempt to expedite the reunification. Believe it or not, they miss us over there. Sometimes, more often than you might think, they send souls over to our world to be born as human babies. The transition from their world to ours is not an easy one. Intricate rituals and incantations are involved. The transition is not easy on the soul. A great deal is lost. They will, fa they will faintly remember being something different, something better, where things made sense before they came to this world, where things worked like they ought to, where love and magic had the power to heal. They will know what makes other people happy does not make them happy. And what makes them happy makes them happier than anyone else alive. They will see things that others cannot see, hear things others cannot hear, feel things others cannot feel, and know things others do not know. They will laugh a great deal or cry a great deal or both. They will love humans individually but have a hard time with humanity as a whole. They will have a handful of very close friends and often be very lonely. They will be unhappiest when forced to act like a human and do the things that humans do, want the things that humans want. Things will not be easy on them because of their memories of the other side. The world will seem to them to be a wondrous calliope with just a few teeth missing and one of the cogs. And because of this tiny deficiency, the music is all off-key and the horses crash into one another. The children are frightened, bruised, and crying. The solutions will seem obvious, but no one else will listen. They will repeatedly be punished for shouting fire in a crowded theater when the building is actually in flames, but no one else can see. They will be zealous, fanatical, didactic about their beliefs. They will feel utterly confused. They will have ecstatic visions and babble incoherently. They will be extremely articulate. They are prone to long periods of silence and have no idea how to say what they really mean. They will spend lots of time with children. They will become drunkards, dope fiends, organic gardeners, Essene scope makers, carpenters, madmen, magicians, jugglers and clowns, lunatic physicists, painters and scribblers, travelers and wanderers. They will dress in bright colors, frumpy sweaters, or all black. They will smoke too much, drink too much, eat only macrobiotic foods. They will develop addictions to Mountain Dew. They will often be accused of living in their own fantasy world. They will make wonderful lovers. Yep, even the trolls. They will spend much too much time either making love or thinking about it. And they will speak to inanimate objects. They will have much brighter eyes than everyone else. They will expect their magic to work in this world and their love to heal. And they will be crushed by this world and often not expect it. It will come close to killing them. They will visit the places where the connections still exist, the waterfalls, the mountains, the oceans, the forests, and they will draw on the power they have. The teeth will grow back on the Calliope's cog. The tune will write itself. The horses will bob gracefully up and down, around and around. And the children will giggle and sing with cotton candy stuck to their hands and their noses. They will spend their days trying to reconnect a branch that millions are busy sawing away. Often it will be more than they can bear. While the rest of humanity is busy working on a new and more efficient way to waste the earth, they will try to save it a handful at a time. 
and they will share a common conviction that they are the only sane individuals in a world gone mad. And they are right. That's right. This is <laughs> this is uh, Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, the phone's ringing, and we got Kent on the other line. And it's Halloween night, and everything's cool and casual. So I think we're gonna play one more song here. One, two, three, four, five, six from Gordon Downey, Coke Machine Glow. Uh, this is uh, Chancellor, another wonderful vampire reference. Back in just a minute, this is Mike, Radio Orbit. We'll have Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com in just a few.
All right, there you go. Gordon Downey from Coke Machine Glow. That was Chancellor for the Orbit, your imagination station. And uh, speaking of the imagination, a guy that can talk about it like none other, my great friend Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit is with us tonight. And uh, most of you should be relatively familiar with Kent by now. And if you're not, you'll just have to catch up to us. So, uh, hi there, Kent. How are you? Thanks for being on the show. i got to clear my throat, get ready to do some talking. That's right. <laughs> Time to gather around the old stove. Hello, everybody. So what do you imagine on Halloween night? What do you imagine? Is it haunted? Is this a haunted domain, a world? Who's haunting it? Spirits from other dimensions and... How do we know we're not the ones that are haunting it? <laughs> you know, I was watching the Weather Channel the other day, and it showed this really awesome tornado uh, begin to cone out of the sky. And there's nothing more haunting than that. Oh, weather. man. And began to cone out of the sky, and then it started coming down and down and down, and finally it touched the earth, and all hell broke loose. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I thought the the metaphor that came to my mind is, that's us. <laughs> oh, man. That's us. We're that tornado, that tornado that precip- precipitates out of what Yates called spiritus mundi, you know, many, many layers of intelligences. Oh, yeah. That's... You know, for each one of us, there, depending on how you review history, there are tens of thousands of beings that have been here right where we are right now, but gone now. Mm. And uh, so what do we do? Do we precipitate down here and cut our little trail like that tornado? We're born and cut our trail and then blip, we're gone. It's such a very short time. What's the answer to it all? Do you feel that things are haunted? Well, they are haunted. Maybe we're the ghosts. I don't know. Yeah, it seems more and more... I don't know... It seems more and more that that the veil between the two is is getting thinner. I tell you that. I, I mean, because life, at least in my world, just gets stranger and stranger. Uh, I mean, uh, and it's not even dream time anymore. I just have the strangest things happening in just real time anymore. Yeah, maybe we should talk about. You know, we can get philosophical here. <laughs> <laughs> but may, maybe a good haunting night would really be for me to talk on. Mike, to talk about haunting things. I mean, what have we seen? Hmm. We don't have the eyes of a bat. We don't. Have, <laughs> we don't have the ears of a cat. But every once in a while, we do uh, experience. I think everybody does. You know, we're just in our culturization and our uh, propaganda that we get in our culture. We won't talk about it. But uh, the sort of uh, meat and potatoes reality gives away lots and lots of that for me, but then I'm a dreamer. And I set out early in my youth to avoid the sciences because they really bothered me and uh, to cut trails in the humanities and in creativity because it was faster. You know, nothing was holding me back. I could just. Were you, weren't you sort of chased by the scientists, though? Oh, yeah, yeah. When yeah, the- I, like Brian, my son, Mike knows my son. I was a, a mathematical sort of a whiz back then. And I, now I can't even, I forget elementary 
Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> that was 50 years ago. But, uh, yeah, and I was all... The Eisenhower Commission wanted us all to go be uh, antidotes for the space race, but then the arms race in the Cold War. Hmm. There was big propaganda for that. And, and, and involved in that process, they wanted us, a lot of us to go to college, which wasn't a bad idea. It was a fairly harmless <laughs> concept to tilt everybody through college so that we wouldn't all hit the the market all at once. The right, right. Employment situation. So, yeah, but I went into uh, uh, college and uh, uh, and I don't know, I, a lot of things happen when you're off on your own for the first time, including girls, you know. <laughs> I fell madly in love with the uh, saucy brunette. <laughs> I think set up set about to destroy everything mathematical in me, <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, love will do that sort of. My first haunt. In fact, here's a here's a tale for you. All right. All of that being off on my own, being in college, not knowing what I wanted to do in my life, going through paradigm changes, not wanting to be a scientist anymore, not wanting to go to a, a biology class. And cut up a frog. I didn't want to do that anymore. And I didn't want to go through laborious intellectual processes anymore before I felt like I was getting anywhere in terms of self-realization. I wanted to, I wanted something else, you know. I wasn't happy and, I, and I was, my heart was broken hmm. in matters of love. So they, Buck Young talks about going out of the woods. When's the last time we all went out in the woods alone for any extended period of time? Not No, not your car. <laughs> no. <laughs> not driving around on the country roads. Right. But actually out in the wood. Yeah, well, so what I did, that was spooky. I, I grabbed, it was uh, early spring. There was still snow up in the grounds, up in the canyons along the Wasatch Front, but I didn't have a sleeping bag. I was just crazy, man. So I rolled up a, I rolled up a, what I had, a quilt, tossed it in my old 51 Pontiac, drove up and, and the foothills and then the edge of the really uh, awesome Wasatch Mountain Range. It's this big tectonic spine of mountains that sticks up on the east end of the Salt Lake Valley. And there was a canyon there called Hughes Canyon. And, uh, uh, well, I started early in the morning, and then uh, I, I got there, you know, as the sun was coming up, and I hiked up this canyon. And there was just all it is. I knew I was, for the first time in a long time, I was taking my own vision quest, you know, getting away from everything. I had to do it. I wasn't even sure what I was doing, but it felt really ritual. And I had this roll over my arm, and I didn't have a pack. I just had this roll. Well, I hiked up into this Hughes Canyon, spelled H-E-U-G-H-E-S. And I went by some old encampment spots that almost, they were really spooky. I can imagine the early uh, cow 
folks up there staying in these little grottos, but the more you look at it, you see the Indian signs, and then you start thinking, man, this place has been here since Cro-Magnon, you know. Right. This is a camping place at the base of this little stream that feeds down this canyon. And I went up and up and up and took my time. And uh, at the top of this canyon is, a well, at a precipice in this canyon, sort of a box canyon, fed by a waterfall. Hmm. And then you have to do some climbing to go any further. Well, you know, foolishly, that's what I did. I did some rock, serious rock climbing, <laughs> no ropes, <laughs> you know, an old pair of leather boots that were falling apart at the seams. The old style that when you went tromping around in the wet snow, which was still on the ground, they get wet and your feet get cold because right. they're not waterproof. <laughs> and your socks are soaking wet. <laughs> and here I am climbing up. I just thought, I'm climbing, I don't care, I'm going to live or die, I'm going to climb, <laughs> you know, I want to climb. So I'd climb these uh, uh, red rock Utah sort of uh, granite shale mixture. And uh, I got to this one place where I began to feel like someone was looking at me or watching me doing all this. Or maybe it was me watching myself because I was doing such a damn foolish thing up there climbing this, this sort of vertical edge all by myself. And I got to this one, I remember I got to this one place where I got stuck. And I couldn't go up, and I couldn't go down. And I thought, well, that's it. I can't go up, and I can't go down. Because if I look over my shoulder to look down, you know, I couldn't see my feet or where to put them. Put them Because the leverage of just looking back would almost throw me out over in the mid-space with hundred foot drop. Jesus. <laughs> I'm toasted. <laughs> I can't go up. I can't go down. So what do I do? Well, it's funny how when you're in a situation like that and there just ain't nobody else around, you develop sort of suction cups on your belly and you sort of squiggle, squirm up over a top which angled out a little bit frightfully away from a straight vertical and angled out enough that you really had to grab hold of things. I'm one-handed. I was born with one hand, so I was kind of holding this roll with one. Yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the caveat that most, <laughs> that most people didn't realize. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking that in myself, but we've never really a mentioned mutant that. man. Yeah, I picture the bard up there with one arm swinging on some freaking rock. I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, but I felt like something was watching me, because it was getting darker now, and the, and the and it was getting pretty dramatic, you know, like right. old black and white spook movies because the storm clouds were coming in. It looked like it was getting ready to do something. Well, I made it up over the top ridge of that, and then I kind of angled around to the uh, left side and plunked over a few more rocks, and I was at the top of the uh, waterfall. And night came down, and it got frigid cold. This is Utah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is Utah in March. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sun goes down there, and it gets cool fast. And it got freaking cold. So I thought, well, this is going to do it if I didn't fall to my death on those granite precipices out there. <laughs> this is it, man. I'm going to freeze. <laughs> uh. They'll find me up here in a couple of weeks. <laughs> And so I got it, and I knew how to build a fire. <laughs> so 
So I built a fire, heated up a bunch of stones, river stones, and oh man, and then put my blanket over me, and uh, put the stones all around me. You know, mm-hmm. once they were hot, hot rocks, I oh, put yeah. them all around me to keep me warm. Otherwise, I'd have probably that would probably been it. But then it started getting dark, and it started to snow. <laughs> And uh, I was looking up through the, you know, you lay down and you're looking up. There's still a little bit of light. It's twilight. And you mm. look at the snow. It feels like you're laying on your back looking up. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's and amazing. the snow is coming down. You start feeling like you're rising. <laughs> you yeah. know, you get this relativistic motion like you're, you're suddenly, the snow isn't coming down, but you're getting weightless and you're rising up, moving up mm. into the, into the snowstorm. And then I suddenly started getting a funny sensation, and I think Bucky Young's world broke through, and it doesn't always come through visually. It has at times Mm. for me, but this Mm. time it was even more dramatic. It came to almost every cell of my body, a sort of pulsating, pounding, well, how can I do it? Woomba, woomba, woomba. Woomba sensation. It began as sort of like uh, spinal chills, like you get when you're hearing pretty music, mm. or when, when you're romantic, you know. But the, the, the chills began to build and build and build, and it became this huge crescendo. Like I, like I felt like uh, I was going to cause my own earthquake up there, because every cell in my body had caught on to some sort of. I was, <laughs> I was being nano attacked. Mm by something electrical because it took every cell of my body. It's almost like you see those old movies where Felix the cat sticks his <laughs> tongue in a, in a light socket and his bones light up. You know? That's how it was. And I thought, man, this is it, you know. I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. Well, what that was was a major haunt because the more I said, a part of me, thought, well, I want to feel this out. I want to see this through. I'm curious, right, you know, right, what's right. going on? This is a pulsating electrical sensation. Uh, I was down on my back with my quilt over me, wide open. I mean, it was waking me up more than I have ever been awake. <laughs> but the problem was it also pinned me down. I couldn't resist it by moving. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like a bug on a stuck on a, with a pin. <laughs> And it became really powerful, and I thought it was not only going to kill me, but I sensed the possibility of worse than being killed. I sensed the possibility of annihilation Hmm. because it was electrical at the cellular level. And it seemed like it had enough force and enough power to take anything material, you know, Hmm. or maybe even anything conscious and just destroy it. Hmm. And I don't know exactly what happened. It got to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. I thought I was going to perish right on the spot. I mean, just flame out, fry goodbye, pile of cinders for oak. You know? <laughs> and suddenly it was like it recognized that I'd taken about the biggest hit of could electrical handle. energy I could stand and it backed off. Hmm. <laughs> So that was a really real experience. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see uh, flying hubcaps or, or anything like that around up in the mountains. I didn't see any uh, visual things. I didn't actually see lights. I just felt it at the cellular level. And I, let me tell you something. 
that that experience was more visual than anything I've ever seen visual. Because <laughs> hmm. it's like every cell in your body is seeing something. Oh, my gosh. And so I took that down. I was very religious, very clean cut, and, you know, didn't drink, smoke, coke, or anything like that. I was a Utah cowboy Mormon back then. And so I went down <clears throat> the next day, still stunned, you know, because that was the first time in my life. I had sat in church, you know, endlessly for years and years and years, going, oh, man, when's something going to happen? <laughs> and then uh, finally something happened. So I went down and told my, my, uh, church leadership about it and they looked at me and turned pale and said it was the devil oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, 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 an appropriate response right and I you know I said BS and began to remove myself from their influence mm. from that point on right. and track my own way and uh, off I went tracking my own way and that experience would I don't want to go through every one of them boring but that experience kept coming back mm. yeah we've talked about some of some of these things at, at at great length you and i and i've had a similar experience uh with just an out-of-body experience the only thing that uh, the only way that i could ever describe it and it had was it was preceded by uh, an event similar to what you're uh, talking about Although I wouldn't describe it as intensely as 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 you do, uh, but anyway, I've there 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 are many haunting things that I think happen to lots of us, and uh, because I don't think that that it's anything that special. I think it's sort of like what you mentioned before that a lot of people are just very nervous in this particular environment, uh, cultural environment that we live in to 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 even chat about it. What did you see? <laughs> I want to hear more about your experience. Well, I was in Paris at the time. I was on my honeymoon. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, it was uh, uh, when Ashley and I got married. We went to we went to Europe uh, for our honeymoon, and it was right after 9/11. It was a, it was as a matter of fact, it was 11 days after September 11, 2001. It was the 22nd, and we flew to Europe, and everyone said, "Oh, you're crazy to fly," and "No, you know, we're all going to die," and all that. And we said, "Oh, hell no, we're going." So. Um, we went and we were there, were, there weren't many people on the plane and we had a great time. They took great care of us. And, uh, anyway, toward the end of that trip, and by the way, that was, uh, that was the same trip where I went to, uh, to Hende, France and saw the monument, saw the cross, you know, that, uh, Jay Widener and Vince Bridges talk about. Um, I've actually been there. It was amazing, an amazing thing, but. Anyway, so yeah, maybe that's part of it. Actually, I get back from from Hyundai and this amazing uh, experience with the Great Cyclic Cross that's there in Saint Vincent Square, and I get to to uh, Paris and went to sleep this one night. Well, I woke up, and as uh, I mean, uh, the argument is, oh no, you were still asleep, and it was sleep paralysis or whatever. But I mean, the only thing you can do is say, look, this is my my own personal experience through the. Uh, you know, viewed in the light of my own consciousness and 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 intelligence, and tell people what you think happened. So, uh, I'm telling you, I was wide awake, and um, there was a buildup of of energy, like you mentioned, sort of a humming, buzzing, uh, sort of thing, and then a pop, sort of a pop, and bingo, I was gone, dude. I was f- ballistic. I went straight up 
right out of that room, out of that hotel that we were in. And the next thing I knew, I was looking down from uh, some height, some great height, on the city of Paris. And I saw everything. I saw the, the cool little Ferris wheel and the Eiffel Tower and all the cars zipping around the the, uh, uh, the Arch de Triomphe. And, uh, I mean, it was a trip. And uh, I was thinking, I want more. I want to go further. And I tried to go further out, further up. Um, and then, I, then it, it becomes a little less clear at that point, but something happens, and, and I, I think I remember consciously thinking about, oh, man, I wonder what's going on back with my body or whatever or something like that. I was sort of curious about what was really happening. And as soon as I thought about that, it was zip, and I was right back in bed staring up at the freaking ceiling with a gasp uh, at, at the edge of my lips, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just thinking, what the... F just happened. <laughs> One time. <laughs> <laughs> Pull up your chair a little stool. Oh, that's right. The, the fire. fire's burning hot now. <laughs> I got another one. Should we do it now or? <laughs> well, I tell you what, we're we're uh, we're we're right toward the bottom of the hour. Let's do let let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll uh, we'll tell more haunting stories. Yeah, with because the... you know what I want to do is tell things that. Stuff that happened to me—that's what I, you know, the haunted world. Yeah, well, no we'll offense to philosophers, I want to tell you what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you got the venue, you get the you get the talking stick tonight. So, I mean, that's a good tale. Oh yeah, and you've when got you've you, been there. <laughs> yeah, you and you've got you've got some stories that are that are with up there with the best of 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 ones that I've ever heard. So I look forward to it as well. Uh, so we'll do that. We'll be back in just a few minutes with my good friend Kent Stedman. You can check out his work at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. And you can always link there from uh, from my new website, mikehagan.com. And we'll, uh, we'll have to ask Kent what he thinks about that, too, when he comes back. Uh, but at any rate, uh, we will play a little bit of music here. I think I've got some Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds here, again, keeping with our Halloween theme. This is called Supernaturally from The Liar of Orpheus. Recent stuff from Nick Cave. Good stuff, too. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back with Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit in just a few minutes. Don't you go, hey, go, 
Seeds from the Lyre of Orpheus. That's supernaturally. And this is called Spell, but I'm not going to let it play because my good friend Matt has an announcement for you right about now. Uh, so, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia 89.5 FM. And uh, we're going to get right back to it here with my good friend Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. It's a Halloween. Night, and we're talking about haunts. All right, Kent, give me another one, man. Well, it was uh, oh, early 80s, and I was going through Las Vegas, and Las Vegas, what a trip that is whenever you go to Las Vegas. God, no kidding. <laughs> and I spent a few hours there buying their cheap lobster dinner and gambled a little bit. 
won a little, lost a little, ended up losing a little. But I was on a trek back home from Fresno, California to Salt Lake City, Utah, and and I hopped in my car, and I'm out of here. (laughs) So I left the flashing city lights behind me and headed up, heading north, and uh, about, oh, 30 miles north of, I'm getting my freeway systems all mixed up, so I won't say it's Highway 5 or Highway 15, because I don't remember anymore what those roads name were, but it's the main road, freeway, and you go up about 30 miles due north of uh, Vegas, yeah, it's like Route 15, I think you're right. Yeah, Route 15, and, and, and... and I passed this road that said the Valley of Fire. That's right. I can't, we've talked about this. I've been there. Go, but it's amazing. The Valley of Fire. Yeah, go on. Oh, my God. I can't believe you're going to so tell this So I drove a little ways down the road and I went, huh. <laughs> Valley of Fire. And then, no, no, no. Uh, one must not be linear in one's thinking. So mm. I stopped the car and turned around. as my old Dodge pickup truck. And uh, went up, turned left this time to go and do east up this really windy road up into the sagebrush. And then the moon was out, and it was dramatic, a lot of clouds, but the moon, full moon was peeking through the clouds, or at least a three-quarter moon. It was bright, bright enough to, at midnight, you know, pretty well illuminate the the landscape and oh man the landscape (laughs) it was like uh, picture yourself somewhere on Mars Mm. a twisted rock formation with every imaginable shape that you can interpret as looking like anything you want it to it's like massive twisted rock formations cathedrals towers you know, uh, Easter Island type of formation. Right, right. Uh, uh, goblets that seem to spring up out of the earth, stone goblets resting on a single stem, you know, <laughs> carved by the elements of water and the wind over the years. And uh, uh, various colors, of course, at that time of the night, you just knew the colors were there, although and you right, could right. see it in your headlights, you know. And so I went up and around and around. I went to finally ended up in a place called uh, Valley of Fire State Park, and it was I I believe again this was early spring, uh, maybe it was winter break. I was on winter break. I don't recall, but the uh, this little state park called the Valley of Fire State Park. It was uh, it was. Uh, Abandoned. There was no one else there except me. And I drove in and I saw this huge brooding, sort of shrouded-looking head sticking up out of the ground. <laughs> it was a massive rock formation that was uh, uh, sitting out rather distinct, all by itself, quite vertical, uh, surrounded by lots and lots of other rock formations, canyons and twisted little you know they went on they go off and it's west of uh, what was the big lake there Mead Lake Mead Lake Mead and it's it's west of that and uh, so here's this big so I parked my car at the base of this big rock and I said 
and it, how can I put it? You look outside, and there's this big, sort of looks like an ice cream cone in a way, you know. But it's a, a couple of hundred feet tall, and if you walk around it and you get along one side of it, it looks like a face of something, you know, hmm. like the profile of something, mm-hmm. like something Indian. But what the, the the Mounties had built for me was a ramp up the face of that rock with a platform on top. And uh, going uh, three-quarters of the way up the face of the rock, so I scrambled up this metal sort of ladder, you know, with handrails. And, right, you know, that they had built around this thing? Well, it was built on one face of it, on one side, okay, right. the north face. And, uh, oh, interestingly, just before I ascended that rock, there was this little old fox. <laughs> These hmm. kit fox, I think they call them, desert fox. Hmm. Have you ever seen a dog smile? Well, that little fox is grinning. <laughs> I've never seen him. He's darting around, darting around. He wouldn't go away. He's sort of like a cat. that won't get out from under your feet. But he was like saying, howdy, <laughs> you know. Right. There no other people here except you and me, said the kid fox. If you need anything, let me know. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, this was the uh, psychic <laughs> communication going right. on between me and the little guy. Right. And uh, so I went up this ladder and it stopped at a platform which had a rail around it. And, and here's this sort of cave that goes through the top of this right, went all the way through and then kind of twisted around in strange uh, dog leg turns. But uh, all around me were these hieroglyphics, man. <laughs> had my flashlight. And uh, antelope figures and what looked to be like shaman figures, you know, guys with horns. Hmm. Uh, uh, looked like mountain goat figures and then lots of spirals that were going, some going left, some going right. Lots of zigzag patterns. Hmm. Uh, uh, a rather sizable think of it you're looking at the size of a, a state building or something like that it's all covered with ancient graffiti hmm. what they do is they carve through the sort of uh, these desert rocks they get a kind of patina heat patina over that scorches them dark and then they carve through this, this scorched layer darker layer and, it, and it, the carving is red and I looked in that cave, and those those uh, petroglyphs, uh, you know, rock painting, rock right. carving. Right. They they were they were continuing through this cave, and I hmm. thought, well, I don't think I'm supposed to do this, <laughs> but I'm going in that cave. And so I hopped over a railing that prevents people from going in the cave, and uh, I went in the inside and sat down and thought, well, I know something is about to happen here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know something is about to happen here. I mean, it might be that I'll get arrested for probably right, being right, but something's going down. <laughs> so I was sitting there and sitting there and watching the moon sort of coming through the clouds. And uh, again, uh, you feel the power of places like this. Mm. You feel it because you're all alone, you know. There just ain't nobody around. And uh, you're sitting in this monument, you know, covered, surrounded by hieroglyphs all around me. I have my flashlight on. But, you know, I could turn my flashlight off and still see them quite clearly. There's enough illumination from the moon. And then I began to hear 
like, like bee, like a bee. Right, there's that buzzing, yeah. And I thought, well, well, it wasn't the big crescendo thing that I experienced in my youth. It just sounded, well, it sounded like a hornet or a bee. Mm. Uh, that damn bee around here, I'm going to get stung. But it was the wrong time of the year. It's too cold for bees, you know, too cold for hornets. Mm. I had to, uh, took my sleeping bag up there, wrapped it around. So I thought, there, well, it's something else. It's not a bee. And I'll just sit here and be real <laughs> quiet and listen. <laughs> well, the bee sort of been flooded my whole brain, and the next thing you know, it was bam! It was bright daylight, and it was uh, three thousand years before then. <laughs> and there was this village, and uh, uh, people dressed in sort of uh, mm, very simple tunics with, with their heads, with their hair carved and kind of a bowl cut. Hmm. And uh, uh, the village was uh, adobe, you know, mm-hmm. village, and there were people out farming, and it was brilliant right about the noonday sun. Amazing. And that all just sort of spread beneath me like that. And I watched it for the longest time, watched all these people come and go, and it's like they weren't aware of me. Mm. And I didn't want to interfere. It was like... Uh, uh, a hole in space time that I was allowed to look through, and I was—I was, I thought well, I was going to collapse any second now because I was aware enough to know that this was not the ordinary right, motion right. picture show going on here. Right. And I watched it, watched it, watched these people walking around, watching the daily life. I can't think of anything distinct that I watched, you know, that I could—that seemed anything out of the ordinary, except the best people cultivating their fields and farming. And I became aware that. The place I was in may have had something to do with uh, uh, like a watchtower, a watchtower, or a shamanistic place where they go to do ceremony. Maybe that's what it was. A ritualistic place. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it was a hunting blind. I don't know. But then the whole thing just sort of faded away, and I went, gosh, hopped back over the fence and said, I'm going to go sleep. Sleep. That's been the only thing I know what to do now. So I went down, uh, threw my bag in the bed of my truck, and climbed in. Went to sleep, and uh, not in the bed of my truck. It's too cold. But the cab of my truck. Went to sleep, and then I began to dream. And I dreamed that I was on this slab of rock. Where I was laying on this big giant slab of rock with an impression that this would sort of accommodate your body, and uh, and th- there were all these hooded figures, shamanistic figures, pulling these black lines of energy out of me, hmm. and uh, uh, shrouded hooded figures, you know. Well, it, it, it was a lucid dream, and it woke me up, and I looked out, and there was one of them standing right outside my dang door. You know, but the more I focused on him, and the more I focused, I realized that I was seeing the silhouette of the rock itself. Amazing. <laughs> so that was a haunting experience. You got any more? <laughs> well, I have sort of a funny one that you just meant that you made me think of, and it's really not a haunting. Although I guess it's it is sort of strange. But my experience in the the valley, my experience in the valley of fire. Yeah, you went up. 
Yeah, it's actually just a, it's more of a comedy story than anything else. Yeah. It's a it's a, again this Vegas story, and we would uh, me and some of my friends would we'd love to go to Vegas, and I haven't been in quite a while. But back in the day, before I was uh, with child and uh, uh, and a family to feed and all this <laughs> all this yeah. other stuff that uh, takes all the fun away, but um, uh, adds a whole different level of fun though too. So anyway. I gotta say that in case Ashley's listening, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh but anyway <laughs> as we're driving uh to Vegas uh, I was with my friend Johnny and he's a cab driver in Denver. And neither one of us had much money, but we would always get to Vegas and we'd try to go out there um uh usually in the in the springtime or in the summertime when it was hotter than hell because that's when you could always get a good rate on the room. So anyway, he had a Geo Metro, like a nineteen eighty eight Geo Metro little three-cylinder car, one of the smallest cars on the American road, for sure. No air conditioning, <laughs> no nothing. I mean, it's just like a, like a sewing machine motor, you know, with a, with, a, with a thin metal body around it or something. But anyway, we drove that Geo Metro from Denver to, uh, to Vegas. And, yeah, when we went through the Valley of Fire, it was, it was like that. We didn't stop and go through the caves, but it was so hot that we were, we literally, had, we had the windows closed because it was hotter in the car with the windows open than it was when they were closed because it turned, it turned it into like a convection oven or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we were just literally, I mean, uh, in this in tremendous heat and then we came out of it and the next thing I know we were at the airport and I was totally hallucinating walking through the airport uh, trying to find our other friends who uh, were not as unfortunate as us and actually had the money to fly there, <laughs> so we went there to meet to meet them. But uh, but the whole the whole trip after that was Johnny and I just talking about that the the, the bizarre trip through the Valley of Fire. And then you and I talked about it years later, and I remember you telling me the story uh, that 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 you just related to the rest of the listeners, and it's and and I was like I can't believe it because I remembered going. I know exactly where you were, although I didn't go. Uh, I know because I've driven by there many times. You know, every time we used to go to Vegas from Denver, that's the route we took. So, yeah, well, somebody close to me, I related the story to him. Well, my dad, oh, what the hell? My dad, I told him, and so when mother was still around, they went through the Valley of Fire too to see what it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him later about that. You went to Valley of Fire, huh? What did you think? That place is something else. Oh. Yeah, you know, as though he felt something too, you know. But that's always happened. Well, you know, uh, maybe to, to to tie this back into Halloween a little bit, you know, there are sites and places around the world that that do have particular energies about them, and maybe when we we'll, we'll take a break here in a few minutes, but. Uh, the the Celtic Isles up there in uh, the northern parts of Europe, uh, Ireland, Wales, uh, England, Scotland, there are lots of uh, mounds and cairns and pyramid type things there. And again, these are tied to sacred sites. And there's lots of different talk about uh, earth grids and uh, energy points and all this sort of stuff that's 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 gaining more and more legitimacy 
uh, in quote unquote uh, scientific uh, communities. So I don't know. Um, maybe well, you can see them the way the weather's moving around out there. I mean, when there's a big hurricane beginning to form and the center of it is a perfect rectangle, excuse me, you know. Uh, Bucky Fuller's rolling in his grave saying there ain't no straight lines in nature, let alone a perfect rectangle, let right. alone a perfect golden rectangle based right. on the golden ratio. You know, that's something I've seen and watched in the last two weeks with the Wilma hmm. and then the eyes of Katrina and uh, uh, Isabel and some of the other storms we've watched. There's geometry. Ivan. Distinct geometry. And yeah. if you're going to see geometry in the, this whip, Rips Norton vortex, vortex, right. you know, and you're seeing solid, plain, precise geometry, you know. The Earth has an element, you know. We talk about vortexes. Well, where the vortexes are along various lines that we see of this geometry, the way it expresses itself, and mm. it probably comes and goes as some sort of like I was talking about before, pulsating, mm. where it becomes. Profound and activated, and other times it quiets. Hey, let, let, let's give out the website, Kent, because a lot of the, this imagery that you're talking about, uh, really, the, the the picture is worth a thousand words. And if you go down to cyberspaceorbit.com on the World Wide Web, uh, you will find lots of interesting pictures to look at. <laughs> yeah, I got my orbit haunt up there, uh-huh. and. Uh, uh, several features there. Look at some of the microwave. Oh, the radar signatures. Radar signatures in microwave of uh, Wilma, uh, and then just sit and go. Hum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the stuff is getting ridiculous, and and it's it's been, it's been interesting to watch it as it as it sort of evolves. You know, the first uh, radar rings that we saw, you know, back in the mid to, to late nineties. And now it's almost like it's a te- it's it, it's either a technology or a technique uh, that, that that seems to be at least as a layman as I as I've watched it over time is being refined. Mm-hmm. Who by that's who by what by I have no idea. Yeah, right. and I don't even know if it's human. I don't know if it's the Earth herself. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's an argument for lots of different. Uh, ideas, but I don't think anyone really knows what's happening right now. So, uh, but man, stranger and stranger for sure. Well, you see Katrina forming down in the Caribbean, and then you see it moving a certain way, and then you see three brilliant oh gosh beams, you know, yeah. or no, five of them. Five actually. of them, yeah, those those in parallel, yeah. and then suddenly the whole leading edge of the storm just breaks up, fractures up into rectangular and various patterns and then it changes direction and right into New Orleans which mm. by the way has got to be one haunted place wouldn't you say oh my gosh you know we we, we deal with all our, our haunted politics and the sort of feel dire feeling in the country right now you know we've got a dead city I've never mm. lived in this land where we have where we have a pretty much a dead city and a very important city or port or Mississippi Port. You know. Oh, I, I realized it's that I, dead. I, I was. <laughs> I, Isn't I, anything doing? Buddy, going to do anything about that? They're going to leave it dead. What are they going to do? I don't know. It's been amazing to to watch uh, something that was 
such a profound event, and even and and it, and it was really minimalized, uh, which it usually is, um, un, unless it unless it fits the agenda of of the people that are running the uh, the news uh, at the high levels or whatever. But 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 to me, it was amazing that first of all, it was much worse than anybody ever really knew, and secondly, how quickly as soon as it was pulled off the radar and taken off of the mainstream news outlets uh again as you say we have a dead city and i mean there are lots of uh, uh vultures circling overhead trying to determine how they're going to uh turn that into a cash cow or something but this is like Dave the living dead this is a dead city you know yeah. had corpses floating around oh, you want to talk halloween God. you just had their the graveyards are split open you know with with uh uh Ancient uh, burials scattered all over the darn place. Oh yeah, and I mean, and and who knows how many people actually were killed during those uh, yeah, during, during those days? I don't think anybody has really come close to knowing. But but the bottom line was there were the, 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 talk about haunted, horrific things going on. Yeah, bodies floating around and animals and. I mean, just all manner of nasty. Crocodiles. Oh, okay. Yeah. Alligators. Yeah, sharks swimming in the streets. and <laughs> You know? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm laughing. It's, 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 it's a disaster, but it's, it matches uh, what I just watched on the Turner Channel, the Day of the Living Dead. <laughs> Watching my Halloween uh, movies, you know. So uh, I'm na- laughing nervously. I really uh, wouldn't want to be walking around New Orleans, I don't think. Right now, it's no, it's a sh- yeah, it's a shame what happened down there, and it's absolutely un- unbelievable. It's a disaster. A lot of people died. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and, and we have a dead city in America. It's dead. I don't know if they're ever going to fix it. Yeah, we got more weather coming in out there. What's the latest? Is what, what's is in the well? In- I'm watching it now. They had this. They, they're starting to name the storms. They brought out of the alphabetic names. Right now, they're, now they're using the Greek names, right? <laughs> they're naming them Alpha and Beta. Well, Beta didn't work its way up there. It got destroyed in Central America when it hit the mountain ranges in Central America. But all the uh, the uh, debris, the Beta debris, is still out there moving into the Gulf in, in, in big squalls. Then there's something else moving in. I don't know if it'll go through the usual nomenclature. First, it's a tropical depression. It'll be mm. tropical storm theta and then hurricane theta. But there's something out there still moving in, and this is getting pretty. We're in tomorrow's November. Are we going to have hurricanes in November? Mm. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. No, not not after what we've seen over the last couple three years. The the, the hurricanes have been amazing, and I mean the geometry is the thing that has been just the kicker for me. I mean, I've, I've never seen anything like we've seen, and, and now repeti- re- re- repetitively with with different storms. And I it, don't think they're telling us everything either. I mean, when Wilma hit the Keys, and well, it just destroyed, you know, hmm. Mexico. Yeah, Mexico. yeah. There's still people stranded there. Still people stranded there, and they just, it was a what a Category Five storm, four storm mm. that just stayed in one place for days, for you know, three days or something like that. It didn't go away. Just just churning, yeah. Just churning, then it went up and raked across Florida with, I think, considerable, considerable destruction. 
a lot of people are writing me saying, help, <laughs> you know. Yeah, from Florida, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know they're still having We did everything we were supposed to do. Well, we couldn't get out because we've been evacuating now how many times already this year. We've run out of money. We couldn't make the trip anymore. Hmm. We've lost all this work in this time. We're ordinary people, and they want us to evacuate again. And yeah, they, yeah. they didn't think the storm would be go to Cat 3 when it came in, so they just thought, well, we're going to ride it out while it came through. Fierce. It went moved through quickly, thank God. Yeah, it went real fast, but it, it was... had a real swamp mm. with, what, 50 tornadoes breaking out here and there. Yeah, it's crazy. And like, it's a race storm. It's Halloween stuff. It is the witch storm. Yeah, and that's uh, again that the geometry in those things is amazing. I'll never forget Isabel. A couple, maybe it was three years ago, actually now two two seasons ago. But that pentagonal uh, geometry that was just inscribed in inside the eye of that hurricane. Uh, I'm, I'm I still shake my head when I still when I see that one, and that's the one I always show people. I say, here you go, and it, you know, and it's a, it's an NOAA official photograph. And it's not radar. It's 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 a literal uh, satellite photo, you know, <laughs> of the storm. So there's wild stuff going on. And again, who and why or what is to be debated? But certainly there are strange things happening. At least last night they they wouldn't let Prince Charles go in there <laughs> and do what he was going to do. Down in New Orleans, right? Yeah. What the heck did Prince Charles want uh, down the, there? A visit, visit to the city. It was planned by. Clarence House and Downing Street <laughs> to display the compassionate side of the Duchess of Cornwall. Oh, Lord, help me. So it was a PR stunt to, to, to make Camilla look like she's got a heart. That's nice. Maybe a dead body float right by her and she could, <laughs> she could you know, try to ID it or something. I don't know. I right, thought well. rightly that, con- that, compared it to, that compared to Charles and Camilla who were so good at expressing concern, the present our president would look even more convincing, so they wouldn't let him go through. God, isn't it funny? You know, we're, we're at the top of the hour. we got to take a break. But the, yeah. the, the language just blows me away. I mean, the language of, of the story itself gives away exactly what's happening. In other words, these are contrived actions. They're not sincere. No. You know, it, it's, just, it's just about uh, about imagery and illusion. It's amazing that they just write it like that to show how good they are. At doing so, I mean, you don't. You're not good at doing that. You you just do it, you know. Well, for various conspiratorial reasons, I think that, that we saw the second battle of New Orleans. Maybe I'll dare that, but I'm accumulating evidence. Hmm. And I'm not ready to totally come out with what I have yet. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's take a break, and we'll come back in just a few minutes. Okay. Okay. All right, everybody. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And this is Richard Thompson. I can't wake up to save my life. We'll be back in just a few minutes with Kent Stedman from www.cyberspaceorbit.com. And uh, don't forget to check out the new website at mikehagan.com as well. That's H-A-G-A-N, mikehagan.com.
All right, here we are. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and we've got my good friend Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com on the line with me. We've spent another 45 minutes or so with Kent, and we're talking about Halloweenish type stuff. I want to play a little. I got my Dobro. Well, you have to play something. You got that email that my webmaster sent you, right? I said they're going to boycott us. I know. Well, they might boycott us after. But I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make up something. So I'll, uh, I'll set my phone down here and make up a little New Orleans sort of Delta sound. All right, and I'll try to and get I'll try to get you as loud as I can on this end. So uh, I'm gonna lay my phone. I'll go clunkety clunk as I lay my phone down here. But I'm in a cramped spot here, folks. Yeah, he's in the cave in, in Seattle. Actually, it's a cave, and uh, you know what a dobro is? It's a looks like a guitar, and I'm and this one I'm holding like a guitar. Some some put them on their lap. Right. It's actually it's called got, a resonator. I yeah, think. it's got a big hubcap on the face of the bout, and uh, with a cone down inside that resonates the, or amplifies the music. They actually made these guitars to compete with piano back in the old days, but it became uh, through Blind Lemon and Johnson and people like that, it became sort of the Delta Blues sound. So Here goes. I'm going to put my phone down. All right, set it down and play something for us. So you're getting the exclusive from Kent Stedman here from his cave in Seattle. All right. I can't believe how good that came through, actually. Did you hear that? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it came through great. I can't, I, I can't wait to hear it back, actually. So, uh, yeah, I actually brought my guitar with me into the studio tonight because I promised somebody that I'd play an old Halloween song for him later. So, uh, so people who stick around till the end of the show, I think probably that's the way we'll finish things off. With the, uh, that way I can just take the dive and walk out of the studio. So, yeah, what key are you going to play it in? I think it'll be in, uh, it's primarily in D. Yeah, in D, and uh, it's a real simple song, but a, sort of a clever lyrical song. So it's called a, it's called D, Boo. I got a D Duffner, maybe. Oh, all right. Well, we've we've done that before. So <laughs> all right. So anyway, what's uh, yeah? What what else? Um, I want to uh, speaking of my webmaster, the guys. This the, the, I've been talking about my new web guru, who's done such a great job and built this new website for us. So uh, I have to ask your opinion on the air as tonight is sort of the official launch of the new website. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah, I see. see you had to say that pretty much. Otherwise, I'd just hang up on them. Yeah. So. Punch me in the nose next time. Right. No, it's really good. What's the guy's name? I forgot. His name is Larry Norager. And he's uh, he's actually like a very accomplished jazz musician uh, who's done a lot of different things over the years and, and has actually played with some... Uh, uh, some of the greats, and is a very super talented musician himself. But uh, 
he's got a strange tale, actually, sort of like you and I, and he, he's sort of a kindred spirit, obviously. Uh, the fact that he, um, you know, came to me, basically, and, and has done everything that he's done pro bono, uh, and is lots and lots of work, and we talk very frequently now, and we're going to try to collaborate uh, and and as we move this thing forward, because he's a he's a uh, a guy that I really want to be a part of it. He's absolutely astonishing what he's capable of doing. So, well, you know, the muses, courting the muses, uh, it comes out for those of us that are uh, obsessed with the whole notion. You know, what do you mean by courting the muses? You know, the ancient Greek wailing muses. Mm. Muses of song and the muses of verse, and so on. They personified them into this castle uh, of Hatsi Tatsi babes, you know, the court goddesses. And once you start stepping on that trail, you might say, whether you do it through the arts, which is the way I did it in my case. Pulling myself out of the box of science and, uh, well, I went, started doing painting and watching all this stuff appear in front of me going, my gosh, where did that come from? And then, of course, uh, doing painting is kind of a, uh, sound, it's like being in a soundproof room and so you want to be with people and then you go to music and, uh, you get twitch painted. <laughs> <laughs> You want to do the visual, you want to do the music, you want to write, you know, anything mm-hmm. that, anything, well, writing is, again, it's a very isolated, monastic type of experience, but of all of them, writing is like a real astral projection. If, if you take, if you take upon something, uh, uh, like a, a prose or a novel, or you get involved in it, you know, you meet people. <laughs> <laughs> you meet them, but your characters become intimate, and you meet them, and you don't know, always know what's going to happen until it unfolds in front of you. So it's like a big, as you're writing, it, it becomes a big projection into mm. another world. Mm. And where the Buck Young thing that you read at the first of the uh, of the program, you know, that that's it. You know, that's you. You link worlds, you link worlds. And have you ever noticed that the fairy tales, the tales, the tale spinning of all eras, of all ages, one thing that I've noticed, whether it's a modern novel or a fairy tale from, uh, or the ancient, the first thing that they did when they learned how to write in the Anglo-Saxon world was to write about the fairy queen and Beowulf mm. and Randall, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and all of these Middle-earth sort of worlds, Worldwide, whether wherever they come from, have this similar feeling to them, mm. like it's a place, you know. Right, right. And you're seeing different, peeping at different aspects of this place, but it's a place. Why don't you Why, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Celtic uh, creation mythology? Because Buck Young ties into a little bit about this, where the the the, the world that mankind was born into. Well, uh, from my, my understanding is that the humans came to this world, what we did. Let's just talk about us. How did we get here? Well, we came in waves uh, of experience, and these waves appeared from the refined sort of spiritual nature and became denser and denser and denser as we projected down into the physical world. Hmm. 
<clears throat> in fact, here's a tale for you. There's a I came across a book in the mid seventies. It's called the book the Book of Bremen. And apparently it was derived and, and have beautifully illustrated. And I lost the book and I can't find it anymore. And I've tried to contact uh, friends in Germany and so on to, to see if they can get a hold of these manuscripts. Yeah, Bre- yeah. Bremen is a is a uh, been there. Yes, I have. Uh, I, I, I used to live in Germany. I've been to most most of the country. But anyway, it's a it's a it's a big area. Bremen is the Germany is sort of cut up into. You know, four sort of big areas, and Bremen is one of those. So it's 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 it, it makes up nearly a quarter of the country, probably. Well, this is Celt and pre-Celt and all of that. But what they did, they, and there's apparently, I don't know if you recall, a big Gothic central church. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful cathedral there. Yeah. Well, in the cornerstone of that church, the cathedral, they found a manuscript. You know, stored inside there, very carefully. Protected. I don't know that we've ever talked about this, really. So they found yeah. it? Yeah. And, and give me an idea of date. Do we know when they found it or plus or minus? Well, the, all I know at this point, because I don't have the documentation in front of me anymore, so I can't be too specific on it, but uh, it was in my hands, say, about 78, and it looked like it had been recently uh, adapted from the actual manuscript itself. Hmm. So, what this, so a recent discovery, though, probably. Yeah, right. I guess. And by, guess. Re- by recent, I mean in the yeah. last hundred years or something, yeah. you know, or two hundred years, whatever. Yeah, but what the story was about, and it took place back when the Celts ruled Europe, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Uh, the the Druids and the uh, is back in Salem. I'm thinking at least 1400 BC hmm. was when this manuscript was penned. And who was it penned by? It was penned by a Phoenician traveler, a botanist. And he was traveling through the country. Hmm. You know, the Phoenicians were a great seagoer, so apparently part of this excursion that he was taking was by ship. And uh, then he went by foot collecting plant species. You know, he's very scientific. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably for marketable purposes, actually, in medicines and things like that. He was cataloging. And he came across a place there in Germany, I assume, where he met a conclave of the beings that lived before us. And the story goes like this. I mean, to to interpret what he was talking about, he went into the village, and the village elder, it's called an Ophir, O-P-H-I-R, sat down and told him what was going on and what was going on at that particular point was they were going to retreat from the whole area now the retreat was to be made by sea but the more you read the 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 transcription it may have meant that when they said they were going to retreat into the sea it may have been into the cosmic sea back in away from the physical world altogether. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they said that uh, there were two basic appearances of consciousness on this planet. One was called the firstborn. The and first, who the firstborn the were? Firstborn, okay. The firstborn, according to this manuscript, were beings that sort of beamed down 
whether they are using a technology we don't understand or, or just a spiritual level of existence, they could they adopted for embodiment. I mean, they became apparent where you could see them, but their but their physical state was simpler elements. Hmm. And back in those days, they talked about earth, air, fire, and water, and that's sort right, of, right. you know, even Newton talked about that as different states of experience or vibration or different phases, you might say. Mm-hmm. You could call them dimensions now. We have to go through the cultures to try to find the right, right jargon. Right. And the firstborn appeared and, and populated the planet, vastly populated the planet. But they weren't stuck here. It was more like a vacation. <laughs> and they they appeared on the earth, and they they did great things, you know. They mm. that are still in physically in evidence, you know. Like on my front page of cyberspaceorbit.com, they discovered this uh, mound, huge mm. pyramidal mound now in in Europe. In Europe. Yeah, I read the story uh, before. I don't know if you heard, but I, while uh, before you came on the air, I read I read a little bit about it. But I pieced this together, so you're going to get my type type of interpretation. They were able to create these great mounds, you know, and where you guys live there in Missouri, there are great mounds. You know? Yeah, yeah, right here. And they, in fact, in 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 a way, the United States is mound center. <laughs> it's there are tens of thousands of stupendous mounds. You know, some of them, the biggest in North America, such as Cahokia. Right, which is right here in St. Louis, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah amazing. Well, yeah. anyway, they built these structures, and you know what I think? This is my own interpretation, but I think they were able, instead of getting out a bunch of heavy equipment like we do nowadays to make big stuff, and shaping material... You know, moving big chunks of dirt around. They, they somehow were able, in their more ethereal, first-time, first-born state, were able to talk to the and communicate with the nano world. Hmm. And there's a lot of implication they use sound. Oh yeah, gosh! In order to do this. You know, um, I'm going to jump in real fast because something that uh, every time these things hit me, I have to mention it. And you know, the shamanic trance that we're that we talk about so often. Number one, it's a, sound is a big part of that. But I've heard um, an actual account of a uh, an African shaman uh, and his journey. And one of the things that he says, uh, literally in his own words, he says. When you go into God's place, you make yourself small. You make yourself small when you go in to see God. That's Buddhist. Yeah, but it also comes through in all of these indigenous traditions. And in fact, uh, that seems to be some sort of an energetic doorway or something where, uh, again, this idea of communicating at the very small levels as opposed to large, higher... uh, Systemic levels, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it makes you wonder. Now, NASA's recently, they've kind of copying to what we've always been calling out here in the lunatic fringe, orbs. Hmm, yeah. They're up on the space station watching orbs. They say they're very peculiar. They have a life of their own, and they seek food. Huh. (laughs) I've got an article about that now. And now they discovered these orbs. They call them uh, something else, flame balls. 
back in '86. Yeah, a flame ball named Kelly. I remember we, we there was I, I actually put that story up today because uh, that came out a couple of years ago actually. But um, yeah, they talk about uh, the shuttle Columbia having witnessed some very strange and quote unquote wonderful things. Uh, well, we saw that with the tethered satellite experience. Right. All these little points of very small points of existence flocking around. And, you know, I'll tell you something. I've got NASA on my cable TV. I've got NASA TV here. They show it through the University of Washington at certain times of the day. And I've watched live a a shuttle walk, you know, where they're out walking around. And I've seen those things go by. In fact, they even commented, well, there goes another one, (laughs) as though it was no big deal. But now they've developed some sort of instrumentation. It sounds to me like they're actually hatching them, or they've built a, a device, an electronic device that actually uh, either captures them, hatches them, or something, so that they can generate these little flame balls and watch them move around. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read a little clip from this article, and this is again, this is from uh, January 31st, 2003. While you're reading it, I'm going to remove my guitar curtain. <laughs> no problem. Breaking my neck. Listen to this. Uh, they're creatures of space. Tiny flames that curl into balls and flit around like UFOs. They burn using almost no fuel at all, dim, and are often hard to see, yet they have plenty of personality. Uh, and then I'll skip to this sentence here. Just listen to this. After that, everyone started naming them, says USC engineering professor Paul Ronnie, who designs the experiment. It was fun. It also helped us keep track of some of the strange things we saw. For example... Two of the flame balls flew around in a spiral pattern like DNA. We called them Crick and Watson. (laughs) Okay, so, you know, and I love how they just make a statement like that with a completely inexplicable uh, thing that's happening outside of a spacecraft where where some strange, quote-unquote, fireballs, and that tells you how much they know about them when they use some old archaic term like fireball, uh, and they and they spin around among other things, create patterns that appear to be like DNA, and and then they just brush it off as if it's sort of a joke. But this is obviously a significant event, and these there's something going on here. This is not random energy; it's somehow being intelligently uh, manipulated or uh, or has its own design. They've introduced an electronic apparatus that either spawns them or traps them, or some maybe it's a little. Elf trap or something. Yeah, softball, they call it. But uh, the thing is, they've seen them prior, you know, without the equipment. When I introduced the idea of the forum, they said, well, you stupid jerk, it's just an experiment they're doing up there, you know, making electronics. <laughs> right. But they, they've been around. In fact, you know, the first UFOs uh, encountered over, say, the Nevada desert, they weren't tin hats flying around. They were, they call them critters. <laughs> critters and they're more like plasma states and uh, so when I'm talking about this ancient legend I kind of have that's the only visual thing I can really relate to because I've seen pin lights I've seen mm. them in the, in the sweat lodge when I had the grand opportunity to be in the sweat lodge mm. uh, in fact one time myself and a bunch of friends we were wandering out in a sort of oak grove out along the Kings River east of Fresno, California, and we saw a, a ring of lights, you know, 
And uh, I've carried that memory with me for many years thinking, yeah, is that another thing I just made up? <laughs> you know? So when I went back to Fresno for a Kenny Hall birthday party concert a couple of years ago, I ran into this crowd that I was with, and uh, they said, no, man, it really happened. You weren't making it up. We were all there five or six. Wow. Down in the tall grass, the sort of... Uh, along the edge of the river, there's a perfect circle of lights, like a uh, space quite evenly, like a uh, luminous dial of a clock. Uh -huh. We watched them. We looked at them. We could get down. We could poke, we poked them with our fingers. Probably shouldn't have done that. But they'd go out and then they'd wink back on. And that was small. It was about a foot across. Hmm. And the pin lights themselves were quite small, but they were there. And uh, so these little lights flying around, what are they? What are they? What do we become after we kick off, you know? Right. Do we go back to our uh, molecular nature? Do we become a point of intelligence? Or are, are we, in fact, seeing around the earth or within the earth? Are we seeing these little lights flying around that are actually truly intelligent? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. but Are they the firstborn? Or what they what we see, what Buck Young, what we now are able to perceive of hmm. the firstborn. Well, well, this ancient Phoenician talking to the back of this tale, he said, then came the followers, and that's, there were wars, he said, between the elemental forces, and he called them the titans and the gods, hmm. which can, can uh, cause uh, seriously chaos upon the world itself. Now, in southeast India, you got whole vast cities underwater and right. off of the coast of Peru. You know, there was topographical damage. And then then he said, then the progression of creation became such that we began to experiment with protoplasm and DNA and protoplasm. And then we were called the followers. And in a way, that was followers, it's sort of the fall. We fell in a protocol. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. But this Phoenician botanist, he witnessed this and, and thought it important. There's more to it. And, uh, and the illustrations that came out of it are pretty much like the descriptions that Buck Young made. You know, they think took various shapes and forms, and these forms would change, and yet they were visible. And again, this is the book that was found in the cornerstone of this church in Bremen. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look. Let's uh, let, let's talk more about it then. Let's take a break, but we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it when we come back. Yeah, okay? you can tell us what it's like over there in the Eagles Nest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, Germany's a strange place, uh, <laughs> you know, in and of itself. And you know, so many places are. I, I was listening to an old talk with uh, uh, Terence and Rupert and Ralph uh, Abraham the other day, and they were talking about India. And, of course, uh, Terrence always looking at things through the lens of the psychedelic experience. But uh, but R Rupert made a joke and said, gosh, you know, when I, when I went to India, I found that India itself was a psychedelic experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, you didn't need to uh, take uh, eat any plants or mushrooms or anything. But uh, Germany, in a strange way, uh, for me, was like that, too. It, it was a very strange experience, especially uh, where I was living and... and uh, the people that I were I was involved with because it was it was 
the vapor trails are still there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, from from everything that happened in the 30s and the 40s, and it is a very weird and cool thing, but strange for sure. So Anyway, okay, we'll chat a little bit more with uh, Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, check out his website. It's amazing, and he's uh, a tremendous artist uh, in the true sense of the word. Uh, he's a creative uh, like I've never met before, and... Uh, in all different aspects, writing and poetry and music and uh, uh, visual arts and uh, really uh, tremendous individual and doing great work on the web now for many, many years at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. And uh, it is a privilege uh, to be involved with Kent and I uh, um, thank the goddess for the day that I ran into him. So, okay. Uh, enough of uh, personal reportage, and let's get back to some good music here, keeping with our Halloween theme. This is Marcy Playground, a good Seattle band for Bard's Quill back there in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, hello to Mantuan Bard, uh, actually, up there as well, and to the guys up in British Columbia. This is Marcy Playground, and uh, the Vampires of New York. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Vampires of New York the 
The Salvation Army is currently Salvation Army is currently accepting donations of new or used coats for their fall coat drive. Coats can be dropped off at dropped off at any Columbia area Conquer customer cleaners or at the Salvation Army three store. The the full the fall cult drive will continue from now on now on until November thirtieth. Information is available at five seven three four four two three two two nine. All righty, there you have it. The fall coat drive at the Salvation Army. If you got an old coat that you're not wearing anymore, give it up. It's getting cold out there. All right, so uh, it is 1.35 in the a.m. on November 1st. And we're on the air for another 25 minutes, and we got a good 20 minutes with my good friend Kent Stedman from cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent, we're back at you here. And uh, so we're talking about this strange book that, that, that was discovered in this... Uh, Cathedral in Bremen, Germany, and it talks about uh, sort of a creation myth, apparently, but uh, with, with from the from from Celtic orig- origins, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, waves of uh, uh, more and more material or three hmm. uh, D existence. It's, it kind of describes what, and I don't think it's necessarily in opposition to some of our biblical scriptures. It describes creation in terms of instead of a physical thing you know in terms of waves of deeper and deeper density and and in the middle of some of these waves you know uh, creatures took various forms of various shapes Hmm. you just played the vampires of new york (laughs) and i a couple of days ago before my computer got haunted and i lost my hard drive i was checking out it says here Vampires, werewolves, and vampires. It says in France alone, between 1520 and 1630, some 30,000 individuals had the misfortune to be labeled a werewolf. Many of them underwent criminal investigation and torture, confessed, and suffered a vile death at the stake. 30,000? Yeah. That's a lot of werewolves. <laughs> That's a lot of werewolves. So, you know, you think of werewolves as. And vampires is Lon Chaney and uh, Bella Lugosi, the way we saw it. We think, oh, well, that's a cool tale. But you know, <laughs> it says here that 30,000 people were fried because they were werewolves. My God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean some sort of mutation state between what this ancient Phoenician was talking about while life was trying to adapt itself and uh, mutating through the various phases of existence where it took on various and sundry shapes and forms, you know. And you look at the human embryo and you watch it grow from a from a little lizard to a salamander to a 
fish with gills right, right. to a mammal. You know, you wonder if there's a, a sort of DNA wand that every once in a while. Maybe this is a description of... Maybe that's some sort of encoded statement about how this life descended from a subtle realm to, hmm, to the more physical, physical realm. Yeah. And there were permutations and mutations in various shapes and sizes <clears throat> somewhere along the line. I don't know. But that's the Celtic myth of creation. And it's a slightly different flip of the coin than what we talk about nowadays in terms of the material we interpret everything in Yankee Doodle Dandy land here in terms of the material existence. Right. Yeah, if you can't bang on it with a hammer, it ain't real. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, they've sort of narrowed the scope of uh, acceptable phenomenon <laughs> to, to the point where uh, exactly what you say. If it's not something that can be materially measured uh, or somehow uh, quantified through only these particular narrow means of science, well, then it just denied existence, whether it's real or not. So. And in the Celtic world, they talk about a subterranean. They, they mentioned this great battle that took place between the Titans and the gods. And that through a lot of living entities, they, they burrowed deep within the earth, you know, in order mm. to survive this war. And, uh, you know, when I see a mound like a the recently discovered mound in Bosnia. Yeah. I don't know why it took them so long to discover that, that was a mound, because you see the aerial photographs right. of yeah. the thing. It looks like Cholula in Mexico. Right. It looks like the Pyramid of the Sun, or it looks like Cahokia. I mean, it's uh, unmistakable. Yeah, and the top of it's not even covered. It's an unmistakable pyramid at the top there. There was some sorcerer king that lived up there for a while. The quote from the uh, from the story that I had says... They believe the ruins indicate the hills were once human settlements probably built by a Stone Age super-civilization tens of thousands of years ago. <laughs> I mean, talk about, you know, science. Uh, I, I love it. On the one hand, it's still so uptight and constipated and tight-assed. At the same time, they put out story after story that just blows paradigm after paradigm right out of the water. Um, Yet uh, they just mosey right along as if nothing ever even occurred. Yeah, in Bolivia they terraformed 500,000 square kilometers right. of land. Massive terraforming. Right. How did they do it? Well, the rumor is they talked to the very small. They were able to mm. cast it. We, of course, we've unleashed certain secrets of the atom and mm. so on, but they were perhaps rearranging things in a molecular way. Or maybe they were just digging tunnels, you know. Sometimes these mounds, they look to me like big old giant anthills, you know, because if you're going to be digging tunnel systems into the earth, you know, what's going to come up uh, the various spots around here, a big pile of dirt. Right, <laughs> 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 you got to put it somewhere. And in the Boyne Valley in Ireland, they're finding under, for instance, the Hill of Terror. They oh, discovered man. beneath the Hill of Terror, they've sounded it, but they haven't actually excavated it. But they found a really complex temple down under the ground. Oh, and that whole place is just a magical place. Yeah. And again, the golden mean, the golden spiral, all this folds right into these uh, that, that that particular place in Ireland that you're talking about, but ties into all of these ancient mounds, or at least many of them. Yeah, they not only built these huge mounds like Newgrange and oh. Nauth and Douth and Hill of Terra, but they 
arrange the, the entire valley to sit under the key stars of the Pleiades uh, star group. <laughs> so they're all, they architected a vast valley so that the mounds were built, not randomly here and there, but under the, the star positions of the Pleiades. Fascinating. Awesome. Huh. <laughs> awesome. And the, the further back you go in time, the more mysterious it gets. And in a sense, Halloween is all about that, you know. It's about mm -hmm. All Hallows' Eve, where they met at, at this time of the year to celebrate their new year, in mm -hmm. a way. And mm -hmm. in doing so, they met at the sacred places, you know, the stone circles and so on. Right. And did the necessary uh, uh, engineering to open up the portals between the worlds. And they'd actually then commune with the with the beings that Buck Young talked about. Hmm. They'd come screaming through. <laughs> right. Whether there are our departed ancestors or whether which might include ancestors that that uh, didn't quite look like us, you know. Hmm. Because in Ireland in the Bourne Valley they talk about the earlier races and the early they go back from the Celts who discovered the Tawatha Dadanan, mm. who are uh, like the high elves in Tolkien mythology. Uh, very beautiful, ephemeral, uh, high vibration, kindly beings, you know. Mm. But the, the Tawatha Dadanan, when they appeared, they had to deal with the subterranean creatures called the fear bowls and lived beneath the ground and the we interpret it in through our screen of the way things work as they went to war with them. Mm. And then before that, there were an earlier race, you know, uh, called the Fomorian, which is, reminds me a lot of the Lovecraft mm. beings, you know, sort of part sea creature and uh, sort of like the swamp thing or something. They were scaly beings from the sea. The mere folk, the blue men of Scotland. And uh, you start going in the Boyne Valley and discover uh, a friend of ours, RJ, he called me and said, yeah, he says a friend that was a special ops type that entered a cave in Dublin, outside of Dublin somewhere, a sea cave, and ended up in the Boyne Valley, you know, by car, that's what, an hour and a half away from Dublin. Mm. He wandered through this cave on foot and came up in the basement of some old Irish lady's house. <laughs> house that's right. <laughs> and she was a bit unsettled about that and showed her Irish temper. And this, this tough special ops guy said, man, I'm never going to do that again. That's the first battle I almost totally lost. That's right. You don't want to mess with Grandma, man. You know, uh, but... One of, one of the points you make is one that I can sort of punctuate is that these tunnel systems in Europe are outrageous. I mean, and what did you see? Oh, in Germany. I mean, I was in. See, the whole the whole of southern Germany, first of all, is salt mines. There's all kinds of subterranean caves throughout southern Germany that are uh, that were and many of which were mined for salt. Uh, just across the border in Austria. Uh, from where I was living is a place called Salzburg. It's a, one of the most famous towns uh, in Europe. It's where the the Sound of Music, uh, the whole Van Trapp 
disaster went down. Uh, but Salzburg, that, that's German for salt. It means the town of salt. And so it's a, so underground there, there are all of these just labyrinthian system of caves and uh, and salt mines. And the uh, both the Allies and the uh, uh, the Germans and and their allies uh, were using these underground facilities. And in fact, uh, when we talked with uh, uh, Nick Cook, the guy who wrote, uh, he's an, he, he's the former uh, aerospace editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, uh, but he's written a couple of books, or he's working on his second book, but he's written a book about uh, this research into the German anti-gravity or exotic uh, technology uh, development during the war, and he's come up with some amazing stuff. But we had a great conversation because we've actually both been to these places, and uh, uh, the Germans had incredible underground cities built for manufacturing. Uh, very sh- very shortly after they realized that the Allies were just going to bomb the hell out of everything and bust everything on the surface, they they quickly went underground and were able to have huge successful manufacturing o- operations underground. Uh, and it's amazing what's under the under the surface of that country. Yeah, and well, I, and it's tail, like, it's yeah. like that throughout Europe, I think. Kent. The tale is that <clears throat> the Germans actually found a, a, an, uh, an ancient craft of some kind up in the by Ararat up in Turkey. Mm. Mm. And a, a lot of what they were doing was back engineering what they found from an ancient civilization. Yeah, there's a whole lot of s- sort of muddy uh, stories and reports about stuff that happened in the 20s and 30s in Germany. And, uh, but there was something going on for sure, and it wasn't, you know, it was it was not just a uh, it was not just a madman who somehow took control of this population. There was a whole lot more to it. And it was an ideology of sorts that that was rooted in uh, completely different ideas that that we have in 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 the West today. It's really strange what what was happening then. Yeah, and now we have the same sort of type of guys, you know, like huh. Taney, Taney and Rumi that are hanging out in an underground labyrinth called Raven Rock. Right up there in the New England area, yeah, where I just came back from, actually. Amazing stuff. Well, did Arnold, you get to hear any Irish music up there? I did. As a matter of fact, uh, the the uh, the last night that we uh, that I spent there uh, was the uh, Sunday night a couple weeks ago. We went to dinner at uh, a little Irish place, had great seafood. Uh, but toward the end of the night, we 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 were all sort of hanging around late after dinner, just sitting around having having cocktails and stuff and talking. And uh, the music broke out like it always does. You know what I mean? In the other room. Uh, a bunch of wandering minstrels had brought their <clears throat> uh, brought their instruments, and uh, there were some guitars and a banjo and a flute and uh, a dulcimer and some great stuff was was coming out of there. It was great. Did you jump into that and play a little bit? I didn't. I didn't have anything with me, and I was sort of with uh, these uh, uh, principles for this institute that I was trying to impress and trying to talk into giving me money so I can expand the scope of this radio show. <laughs> and uh, so I, I figured I, I'd pushed them hard enough uh, for the last three days. I wouldn't jump in with the guitar. So <laughs> Although I might do it here in a few minutes. So. Yeah, do it. Anyway, so... In, in the midst of all this yarn spinning and tail spinning and haunted the, haunt, the night of the haunt, you know, and all this talk, of course, we're on a talk radio show. 
but still, Mike and I, when we get together, we usually end up <laughs> going into a, another world with our music. Yeah, and music can take you to another world. I've told you the story maybe about myself and yeah, a few guys. We started playing music one night for a party of attorneys, and we went into another dimension. I mean, we played music all night and didn't remember a darn thing. And convinced to this day, when we bring that event up, that we went through a gate. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about it. It's funny when we get together. Uh, Kent's right. We don't. We don't like go for hikes or stuff like that. <laughs> we tend to we tend to either sit around and talk, and usually what comes out of those talks is nourishing and 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 amazing usually uh, to me. But we also play music together, and uh, we do walk around. Uh, but we you we're usually looking for music when we're out walking around. So anyway, yeah, and there's a great music scene uh, there in Seattle where you live. There's lots of wonderful music all the time every time I come up there and and back here in Columbia uh, where I live uh, again just a just a really fertile uh, music scene here great music going on tonight actually at a couple places uh, for Halloween so anyway all right Bardo well look uh, play me a tune all right this is uh, that's a D I don't know if it's a D for you but it's a D for me (laughs) so this is our first. I might one. lay a little sound behind you as you're going. All right, this is called uh, this is called Boo. This is a song that it, I wrote with a friend in Denver many years ago, and it goes out to him. Actually, I wish you could find Steve Kewen, wonderful songwriter and singer uh, who wrote a bunch of great stuff, and he just sort of dropped off the face of the map. But uh, but Steve, this is for you, and this is for all the Halloween revelers out there. This is called Boo. <coughs> was a Halloween ball We both had worn our best disguise I was a two-faced clown with painted on teardrops She was Dracula with x-ray eyes Should have been bitten by the symbol I should have seen it in a smile but my hindsight's 2020. I knew it all along. But I was so caught up in her guile, and it had been a long, long time. I asked her if she'd like to. Get away with me And turn a trick To have a treat She looked into my eyes And whispered in my ear I'd rather Get a bite to eat I should have known better I should have seen it in her skin And the way She would hang around my neck But my ego told me this woman wanted me And I'd give her a night she would not forget But little did I know 
asked her if she'd like to get her on her way towards a little cafe that I knew. When we arrived, she gently turned to me and said, This kind of nourishment won't do. I should have known better this was working out too well, but a fool in lust is easily led. I should have realized I would never be the same when a devilish appetite was fed, but my brain had gone deep south. Walk down to the park off the beaten path. Well hidden by the dark night. Into each other's arms we danced a masquerade. It was there I felt the bite. I couldn't stop her, I had lost my will to move, and like a straight man, I just let her have. Away. The next thing that I knew, I was lying on my back, awakened by the light of day, and she was nowhere to be seen. streets in my disguise looking for that toothsome girl in black my hunger for her it even surprises me I need her to bring that feeling back don't get me wrong I'm not addicted to her love and I've not become one of her kind just that if she wants to trade her wicked charms For a couple of pints, I don't mind Uncomplicated love <laughs> Alright, let me pick up all my stuff now that I just threw off my head in the middle of that song. My glasses are on the floor somewhere. I hope they don't roll over them with my chair. All right, well, don't go over there, Matt. I don't want to ruin him. Kent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm accompanying your surgery. Oh, my God. It was so funny. I've, I've, I've never done that and tried to run the soundboard and play guitar and sing. and <laughs> that, a great year. that was pretty fun. All right, so, yeah, uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. And uh, thank you, my friend, for spending it with uh, me here tonight. Thank you. Yeah, everybody, that's uh, Kent Stedman, and uh, uh, we'll be doing more and more of this uh, in the future, hopefully. And Kent, uh, give me your website one more time. Well, cyberspaceorbit.com. That's right. Put it in Google, and you'll come up with all kinds of stuff that's been trickling through for over 10 years. I do it myself every once in a while. I go, oh, my gosh. Yeah, talk about a labyrinth. <laughs> because it's... So much I've forgotten about. Yeah, there's stuff that goes way back, and that stuff is just 
uh, like we say, I mean, it's just been an ongoing adventure, and it's it, it always changes into something new. But the old stuff is just actually as amazing and, inter- and interesting as the stuff that's happening right now. It seems. And it's a creative search uh, out on the edge. It's sort of like you trance out when you're doing. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. All right, well, everybody, uh, do that. Check it out, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent, uh, take care of yourself, and I will uh, talk to you soon, okay? Okay. All right, take care. Good night, all. All right, Kent Stedman, cyberspaceorbit.com, and you can always reach Kent uh, from my website at mikehagan.com or radioorbit.com. Okay, so uh, just about the end of the show here, we've got the boogeyman uh, coming to you in just a few minutes, actually just about 60 seconds. And next week, uh, don't miss it, Walter Cruttenden, the author of Lost Star of Myth and Time. We're going to be talking about binary star systems and why he thinks that we're in the middle of one of them. And if that's really true, it's uh, it's not trivial. And it's something that we'll be talking about next week with Walter Cruttenden. Lots of good music, as always. Check us out on the web at www.mikehagan, H-A-G-A-N. Dot com. That's a new website. You can email me uh, at orbitradio at aol.com. And I'd be very interested in what people think about the new website and uh, some of the new stuff that, uh, that we're trying to bring to you. Check out the news page and uh, the blog and all that stuff when you go to the website. All right, this is Mike, and it's been a lovely time with you. And we'll do it again next week. And hopefully in the near future we'll be doing it more frequently. All right, and uh, stick around for the Boogeyman coming at you right about now.